and he is so worthy of worship, right? Yeah. Let's pray before we look into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you that we can join our hearts and our voices in worship of you. We thank you who are so worthy of worship and that you allow us to be part of your plan and even a part of your family. And Lord, we're, we're so thankful and we pray that you would accept our praise and then now help us to learn more of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, at the beginning of the book of Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman, a woman of the night, and have children with her. Now, that doesn't seem like something God would want one of his special servants to do, does it? In fact, it'd be almost something that he might chastise a servant for doing. But not only does he tell him to go marry an immoral woman, you know, he says, and have children with her. What an assignment for a holy man of God, huh? So Hosea obeys the Lord and marries a woman whose name is Gomer. But then... Not only does he tell Hosea to have children with this woman of the night, he tells Hosea to name their son Jezreel, which was the name of a valley where a horrible massacre took place. And God tells Hosea that he is going to smash Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So it's this ominous warning of something bad to happen to Israel, and he's naming his son in light of that name. And it's a sign, it's a sign to Israel that God is up to something and going to do something that's not in their favor. So God is telling the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute, have a child with her, name the child Jezreel, because God is going to send Israel to their defeat. And so, what in the world is going on here? That's just all strange. Well, just before we say what's going on, let me mention that Hosea and his prostitute wife have two more children, and God tells them what to name these two more children, and one is no compassion, and the other one is, not my people. Have you ever heard of a crazier start to a story? Well, God was sending a powerful message to his people through this prophet and his family. That's why everything was so strange and so dramatic and however you want to call it. He was sending a message to his people. And the message was from God to his people. I gave birth to you as my people, and you are my children, and you have been unfaithful to me. You have been like a prostitute chasing after other gods. 
You have broken your covenant with me. After I have redeemed you, I, I started you and redeemed you and took you to the promised land. I established you as a nation. I conquered other nations for you. And God tells Israel through this prophet Hosea that he is going to punish them for this adultery and it will be painful. And so in chapter 2, we've looked at this probably last week, but just picking out a couple of verses or three verses from chapter 2, 11 through 13. This talks about what God is going to do to his nation. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers and these other nations. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she buried incense, burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. So you can see how God is, is putting this all in terms of you know, an affair. <clears throat> and he tells, he, he was sending this, this stark message to them, pretty severe stuff, that, that he's saying, I'm going to allow you to suffer, Israel, due to your unfaithfulness to the covenant that you have, you know, joined in with me by your own will. But then the rest of chapter 2 gives this glorious picture of reclaiming Israel as his beloved. Now, you know, the first part of the chapter says all the judgment they're going to go through. The second part of the chapter said how he's going to really take care of them. And you think, well, is God being fickle? Mad one day, happy the next? Well, if we read all of chapter 2 like this time, you can see that God takes Israel through harsh judgments to bring them to repentance. And then, because of their repentance and turning back to him, he's able to restore her through faithfulness. So... In the last part, or the second part of that chapter, I just picked out a few verses from that part. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. Shows you they were worshiping. In that day, I will make a covenant for them his, his children, with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. He, he, he's really going to give them a land that's friendly to them. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. <clears throat> and then if we go on in that chapter, chapter 2, it continues with even more blessings. So chapter 2 tells of God's planned judgment upon his people for breaking their covenant. 
And then goes on to say how one day he is going to woo them and reunite them with him and tremendously bless them. In chapter 3, he tells Hosea to go and reclaim his adulterous wife and love her as God has loved the Israelites. Everything that he's having Hosea do is a picture of him, of God with the Israelites, his, his nation. And from the wording, it appears that Gomer, Hosea's wife, has, has been captured into slavery, kind of a sexual slavery. And Hosea tells her, you cannot be a prostitute anymore. And her experience as a slave prostitute, then being redeemed through a purchase, mirrors God's dealing with Israel. And now we turn back <clears throat> to real time with the nation of Israel and where they stand with God. And like I said in the past, we're in the 700s BC, about in the middle of them. But listen to the ch charges that God levels against his people. You know, he says he's going to judge them, then bless them, but now we're still back into the time when they're not doing very well. But look at in, verse, in chapter 4, in the first three verses. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. <clears throat> no faithfulness to the covenant. That is always so big with God and his people. Faithfulness to the covenant, because he's given so much to us, and he wants us to be faithful with him. He says there's no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land, only sinfulness and bloodshed and a land that gets dried up because God withholds the rain. And we can see that the covenant the Israelites have entered into with God was not being followed, was it? And God's people were paying the price for their unfaithfulness. But then God tells them who it is that is largely to blame for these horrible circumstances. And that's in these next few verses, 4 through 9. But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, you know, for their horrible circumstances. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. That's the nation. <clears throat> Excuse me. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. <clears throat> the more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness, the priests do. 
you know, the offerings. <clears throat> and it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. You can see how bad it is at this time. You have the people, you have the prophets, and you have the priests. And God tells them, don't try to blame others because everybody is guilty. All have ignored the laws of God. All are guilty and deserve punishment from God. All have been covenant breakers. My people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Because they don't know the truth. They haven't been taught the truth. The whole nation has just gone astray. And here's what they can look forward to in return for their unfaithfulness and their total desertion of God's laws. 10 through 13. <clears throat> they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution. That's that, you know, going after other gods, but not flourish. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. They're into that, that kind of worship. <clears throat> a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. God is telling them that they are heading for, in return for their unfaithfulness and the desertion of God's laws, they're going to go hungry, they will want but lack understanding, they will be the cause of their daughters and daughters-in-law turning to prostitution and adultery. This is bad stuff, isn't it? But then look what he says about their women turning to adultery and prostitution. This could be surprising too. Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. Because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine, shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. <clears throat> God is saying something pretty striking here. He says he will not punish the daughters and the daughters-in-law for committing prostitution and adultery. How can he not punish these women for engaging in these Serious sexual sins. Well, he tells us why. He says, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. But isn't it still wrong for the women to be involved in immorality? It is, of course, but he's laying the blame on the men. And you see, in these times... And in many times, <laughs> the men would commonly go to engage with temple prostitutes. I'm talking about the society. And Israel's just kind of melding into this, what society does, the sins and everything. And there would be temple prostitutes 
in these pagan temples. And even there were ancient sayings to the effect of wives were for the raising of children and mistresses were for the pleasures of men. And so men did both. And they made a religious ritual out of it. And Israel was not to be like that as God's people. And even in the days of Paul, the apostle, he told the Corinthian believers that they should quit going to the pagan temples. And that was just a part of their culture, even way down the road. And Hosea is saying that the young women are just seeing what the men are doing and are being led astray by their immorality. The men should be leading their families in devotion to God and turning away from immorality and protecting their daughters from immorality. But men were enjoying their privileged positions as <clears throat> leaders of the family or the one who make the decision. They're the ones who are supposed to be setting the boundaries, protecting the people of their family. But they didn't want to take that responsibility. They, wanted, they didn't want to be the family's moral leaders. They didn't want to be the example of those who follow God. And you can just see the, the people of Israel at this time, how bad it has gotten, how far away from God they have, they have strayed. And then it says, well, right here at the very last, a people without understanding will come to ruin. <clears throat> you know, for the men to think that because the pagan society engaged in temple prostitution and that they sanctified free sexual activity by putting it into a religious context, and if they can't think that through to see that that is wrong, you know, having the Jewish you know, religious teachings, the Torah, the biblical writings of the time, if they're not able to discern that visiting temple prostitutes was not something that followers of the true God should engage in, that is an example of a person coming to ruin due to no understanding. I mean, if they can't work that out in their own minds, I think it's good to go to the temples to engage with the prostitutes. They've lost it. They've gone so far down the road that they can't discern anymore. Something so obvious, so black and white. If they really could discern that temple prostitution was wrong, those who could discern it, and if they did it anyway, that's even worse, isn't it? And speaking of knowing something wrong but doing it anyway, I want you to look at these last five verses in our passage. He says, Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. He says, don't keep spreading it on to your neighbors. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. Those were places they would go to, to worship idols. And do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. 
How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim is, you know, another name for Israel, uh, the northern kingdom. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away, and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Not a very good picture of God's people during this time, with, in the time of Hosea, was it? They are even warned not to lead Judah astray. Of course, Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. But you know, sin has a way of spreading quickly and infecting others. Now, I see one major factor of Israel's sad story that I believe is worth singling out. You know, I mean, there's so much in there. But I see one thing that's pretty key. And I see it as something that can happen and is happening to us from our culture. Just as the Israelites were carried away by their culture, their wicked culture. And though it starts outside the church, there are things, these things always seem to make their way into the church. Every time you read these epistles, the sins of the, of the community outside the church seeps into the church. And that's what Paul has to tell them not to do, not to join in on. But <clears throat> they end up taking many church people captive. And the thing that I think is very key here for us is back in verse 1 of chapter 4 that we looked at a few minutes ago, where he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. And the part that kind of strikes me is that part where it says, No acknowledgement of God in the land. You know, there are elements in our society, our modern society, that are bent on removing God from our culture, of pushing him way back. And they see Bible believers and churches as impediments to their agendas. They know that if people start really turning to the Lord, it's going to stop them from doing what they want to do. And they don't like that, so they want to just kind of flush it out. They want to promote ideas, teachings, and lifestyles that are completely against the ways of God, and they're getting more and more bold about it. The Bible and the churches are their arch enemies, and they don't really want to go by live and let live, which is kind of the way it used to be. <clears throat> you have your way, I have my way, we can get along. They want to rid our society of a belief in God, a belief in the scriptures, an acknowledgement of God. So we must be all the more intent on being people of the word. That's, that's our strategy. We have to be people of the word. 
we cannot just go to church and fellowship, which is good, and hear a sermon once a week, which I hope is good, but we have to be people of the word outside of church. Everything we do and want and plan for must acknowledge God. He should be the center of our lives and guiding everything that we do. You know, we read in here, it said, my people die for lack of knowledge. And he was really indicting the priests. The priests weren't following God. And they were leading the people to their destruction. But we must be people of the word. And, and that is such a great thing, that we have the word of God plentiful here. And I'm really glad in our church that I can see so many people that are people of the word. And I can see young families teaching their children to be people of the word. So we need to continue to encourage others in this, encourage each other in this, and to be people of the word and having the word flow through us. I think that's our, that is our defense against people trying to flush it out of our society. <clears throat> and you know, when I, I, I mentioned this before, but when I first became a Christian, the people that I got involved with were strong people of the word. I mean, they carried their Bibles with them. They, we were looking into the Bible all the time, and that was such a drastic change because I didn't even know what the Bible was all about. I went through, from kindergarten through college at religious schools. My friend who led me to the Lord, he was, he was letting me listen to this, this cassette tape on this person speaking about the Bible. And the person mentioned John 3.16. And, and before the person could quote it, my friend kind of quoted it like, for God so loved the world. And I looked at him like, how did you know that? Do you know the whole Bible or something? I had never heard of John 3.16. And I went through 16 years of religious training. We just never went into the Bible. And that's the whole thing. That's, that's the power. That's the way that we can you know, go through this time when people are trying to push God out of the picture. It's through the word of God. And that word of God will strengthen us and build us up inside. And the Holy Spirit wrote the word of God. And so we, with the Holy Spirit inside of us, he interprets it and he can bring it to us and, and, and apply it to our hearts and our minds and our wills if we go in with a good attitude toward it. So, we want to be people who acknowledge God in the land. And we want to be people who cling to God, even in this time when the nation is moving away from God, or certain elements of the nation, powerful people. And we want to have the word of God filling us and guiding our direction and giving us the things that we should think and do. And that will be the best way to navigate this time
when people are moving in the opposite direction. And then as much as we can to reach others, our children and others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for how powerful it is and how much it helps and how much it helps us to grow and to, to love and to turn, turn to you. We pray that you would motivate us through your spirit to want to be in your word, learn your word, and pass it along to others and to be strengthened by your word so that we know you better and follow you close, more closely. We thank you for all that you do for us and how much you love us in Jesus' name. Amen.